Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, hello, Buildings on Air listeners. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and welcome to our March episode of Buildings on Air. It's March 2021, and Buildings on Air is, of course, the show where we talk about architecture and politics left politics specifically, uh, and sometimes more of one and less of the other. Um, today, I think we'll get a healthy, a healthy dose of both. Uh, I'm talking with Jess Myers. Uh, Jess is uh, one of my favorite people in the world of, of architecture. Uh, Jess is an assistant professor at Rhode Island School of Design. That's what RISD stands for, right? <laughs> and uh, a, a co-steward in the architecture lobby uh, where we've organized together. Uh, and so that's how we first met. Um, but we are also uh, sort of uh, in, in solidarity as architecture audio producers. <laughs> uh, Jess uh, has a show called Here There Be Dragons, uh, which is very fantastic. You'll hear a little preview uh, of, of an episode later on. Um, but uh, we'll get into to all that and more, as they say. Uh, Jess, how are you? <laughs> Kiefer, I'm good. You know, living that pandemic lifestyle. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm based in Brooklyn right now and uh, living and quarantining in Flatbush. Yeah, we're all uh, we're all living that quarantine life. Uh, this is yet another building <laughs> that are coming from the home studio. Um, so. I I'm I want to talk about uh, your podcast uh, because you know okay buildings on air goes out as a podcast probably some people will be listening to a podcast version of this episode but but really you know this is a sort of uh, a talk radio <laughs> enterprise where um, you know we we have a chat with people on the air and it's sort of informal. Your show is very much, it's like a podcast. It's highly produced. It sort of has that, um, uh, it's, it's, it's edited, it's stitched together in a thoughtful way. You know, it really gets into like the, the, the full uh, capabilities of what an audio medium can provide. But I think probably the best way to introduce people to your show is maybe like talking about the name a little bit. <laughs> because I, the, the name is so, oh, so yeah. perfect for the show. So maybe that's like, uh, maybe you can tell us about the name <laughs> and, and the show uh, sort of together. Yeah, of course. Um, well, to start with the name, so Here There Be Dragons is, um, any D&D heads out there would probably be very <laughs> familiar with this. But um, it's a mapping uh, convention from um, like a medieval era. You could actually, you could track it back to like, vikings viking era where essentially like what cartographers would do is like sit at a port and as ships come in they would like call sailors and like travelers over to them to like describe where they had been right and mm -hmm. as they're, they're sort of like building up like all of this all of these stories to like create maps um and areas mm -hmm. where um, multiple people talked about either like not going, avoiding, or finding dangerous would have this, you know, tag on it, um, Huntsik Dragonus, which means here be dragons or here there be dragons, um, or here there be monsters. And uh, I liked that title because um, basically what the podcast does is we interview a lot of different residents from a city 
And basically they're sort of describing their city to us, but we mm-hmm. um, ask them about different questions related to their comfort, safety, or feelings of insecurity in their cities and like where that comes from and why. Um, and then we begin to sort of like, you know, the reason why it's edited in the way that it is is because we wanted to sort of like take those stories from people and sort of slide them on a string, almost like pearls mm-hmm. on a necklace sort of next to each other where they didn't necessarily have to be in a room together. Like we're interviewing like wildly, you know, different people. Like I remember when I was um, doing the field work for uh, the Paris season, like one minute I was talking to like an economic development person uh based in versailles and like mm-hmm. the next day i'm talking to you know a woman running like an afro futurist like punk venue <laughs> you know or, or festival right um and it's like these two people probably never in the same room together but the the thing that they have this feeling that they have towards like a certain neighborhood that overlaps is pretty yeah. interesting right and like why would such different people like come away with similar conclusions about a place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and with the, the medium, you can sort of uniquely sort of stitch those things together to tell a yeah. story that you really, you really kind of couldn't in any other way without like displacing them in space and time into, into an audio feed. Right. Uh, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. And, 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 the show is beautiful, like with, with the textures, uh, you know, the sort of audio textures of the place. Um, so there's three seasons so far. Uh, so it's New York was the, the first one, then the Paris. Yes, it's, it's really bad editing. The first one is so, the editing is really <laughs> bad because it was me by myself. And I was just figuring out how to, like, I was using like lynda.com to like learn. <laughs> um, but I feel like you can, I interrupted you, but like the first season is, is New York um, and the second season is Paris and the third season is Stockholm. And you yeah. can kind of hear what funding, what it sounds like to be funded <laughs> as like the seasons go on. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Buildings on Air is probably having the exact opposite trajectory. Uh, you know, it's, we're going from really high quality, you know, every, every month, every year, you know, <laughs> But, but uh, you know, I, so so this latest season, where we're like, you're like, uh, uh, a few episodes have been released, and it's it's zeroing in on uh, Stockholm. So, uh, sort of, uh, t- like, tell me about that. Like how, like how Stockholm? <laughs> how did that happen? Like, yeah. like what's? You know, I, I don't want you, I don't want you to like uh, uh, give us any spoilers or anything. But like, you know, what's what's the sort of uh, uh, spoilers? <laughs> Yeah, what's, spoilers what's, what's, what's about the, what's like mid-century about? Swedish yeah. housing policy yeah um so maybe just to talk a little bit too because I kind of I get this question sometimes of just like why are you focusing on like western cities right hmm. um and I think that that's really it's really important to me um because I think sometimes in um like western education like especially in architecture yeah we and city planning we use western cities as like this example of like things that are done and like resolved and fine (laughs) right Uh like these are these become the the models of cities to everywhere else right right um but i was really curious because you know i've grew up next to new york i've been to paris you know through my life 
Um, and this was actually the first time I've been to Stockholm, but I always like, there's so much, there's such a lack of resolution in these cities. Right? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's so much that's still on the table uh, for debate. So I, I didn't choose Stockholm, really. I met a Swedish journalist at um, a residency that I did, architect and journalist, at a residency that I did in, um, at the Canadian Center for Architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, oh, can I send your show to like this like Swedish grant thing? And I was just like, sure, why not? <laughs> and then I get, I get an email being like, hello, would you like to move to Stockholm for three months? And I was working at a job that I hated. And I was just like, yes, <laughs> I would. So I call I call my producer. I'm just like, should we do a show on Stockholm? And she's like, hell yeah. Or yes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, so we, I start like researching Stockholm Um, And something that's interesting about it is that in the West, and I mean like Europe, North America, Australia, is Uh kind of gets used as this like um, kind of token of like the the sort of left sees it as like, oh, my God, look at all the opportunity. Look at all the way that like the social safety net was set up. Like amazing, amazing, amazing. And then on the um, right, you have this sort of narrative of like, look how they welcome immigrants. Look how they welcome migrants. Like it Mm -hmm. ruined their whole um, it ruined their whole uh, sort of safety, uh, social safety net because of this idea that the only way a social safety net can work at a national level is if the population is homogenous. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah. I, I got, yeah, I, I got really interested in basically how this, how these politics are kind of being lived in the city. Right. And like usually, I come into cities with like a hypothesis, like some kind of hypothesis. Like I remember for Paris, because I went to Paris like right after um, my fi- I did my field work in Paris right after the mm-hmm. terror attacks um, mm-hmm. in uh, like 2015, 2016. And I was like, oh, everyone's gonna want to talk about terrorism. Everyone's gonna ta- want to talk about policing. Blah blah blah. But what people really wanted to talk about was um, secularism, like the mm-hmm. the way that the French set up secularism, and they wanted to mm-hmm. talk about. Um, like the pressure to dress in a certain way in public and Mm -hmm. things like this that were able to lead back to that initial hypothesis. But like, it's like, I got the order of operations wrong. Right. It's like, (laughs) this is what's in the, like, this is what's in the forefront of people's minds. So like when I came into Stockholm, I was like, Oh, people are going to want to talk about like, maybe people are going to want to talk about immigration. Like maybe people are going to want to talk about um, like uh, race a lot. Mm -hmm. Right. But what came up a lot was uh, housing. Like this is a season that was really, like the next couple of episodes are really gonna be focused on um, housing. And also this other question of like, it was, there's a little bit of this in the Paris season, but also like, it's so interestingly codified in Stockholm and in Sweden of Mm -hmm. uh, normalcy. Like Mm -hmm. the uh, desire to, um, some people might call this tall poppy syndrome, but like when you are the the tallest poppy, you're the first to get cut. So like people being really hesitant to like to like be too much, and like uh, how how like stepping out of feeling or looking normal um, 
can be uh, dangerous, right? Yeah. Or how put putting on the certain codes of like Swedish normalcy can keep you safe in certain ways, right? Right. Um, like for example, people talk about language, right? Mm -hmm. um, like if you come from a neighborhood that's seen as like a bad neighborhood, there's a little bit of like an accent or like a slang that comes from that language, and people talked a lot mm -hmm. about like code switching between different types of Swedish um, to get different types of respect in different parts of the city. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like all, all of us really have this like mental ticker tape of like how to hold yourself, how to move through a street, all these ways to try and like strategize for your own safety. But it's really interesting how those strategies like intersect with aspects of policy or aspects right. of like cultural norms, things like this. So yeah. I, I just I feel that that's been like particularly strong in um, Sweden, yeah. especially I'm I'm like going on I'm going on and on, no, no, <laughs> but like, um, <laughs> but um, there there was a the Social Democratic Party in Sweden mm -hmm. had power for such a long time, right? It's like they from like the 1920s to about the 1990s had like near unilateral like power to essentially set up the modernization of Sweden post like post war like post wars which you know Scandinavia has kind of got to be like not a part of those land wars so mm -hmm. you know recovered in a different way from that period but like yeah so to have 70 years to like set up a social safety net to like build public housing to essentially become like the landlord of the country for the right. um there's something really exciting about that but at the same time the way that this kind of uh the way that it was set up in sweden kind of creating a set of like norms like uh mm -hmm. like um sort of cultural expectations um that didn't quite map to when the social democrats also were inviting like lots um or were welcoming lots of different types of immigrants like Sweden, which was really interesting to me, like in the sixties and seventies was taking in people from all over the place. So it's like Yugoslavia is breaking up. So many of those immigrants like came to uh, Sweden. Um, there's a, there's an earthquake in Chile. So many of those immigrants came to Sweden. So you have these really strong and interesting uh, immigrant populations from like East Africa, from Latin America, um, from Eastern Europe, um, all kind of mixing and tangling together in these like um, working class neighborhoods um, mm -hmm. and not actually like mapping to that vision of normalcy right. or that idea of like, this is what a Swedish citizen looks, looks like and requires. That was really a part of the sort of uh, social Democrats sort of um, measuring and planning and mapping for that mm -hmm. uh, social safety net. So I would like I you cannot say that like it's not possible to provide for everyone if they're not all the same, you know. But right. I think that like there is there is this impulse when you're deciding what people need and what they don't need to like map those needs to like the lives that you're most familiar with, which I think mm -hmm. that that is what happened in like. Um, the early days of setting up these policies, yeah. What's I, I mean, I think the show that really captures that because, like, I, I, I 
when I was listening to the sort of uh, Stockholm episodes that have been released so far, you know, I was thinking about how the show really is, a, it is about fitting in, right? And what it means to fit in or not, mm. not fit in. And I think most of us are like accustomed to thinking about what it is to fit in or not fit in on like an individual level or like thinking about what that might mean on like a macro level. But I think the sh- what, what, what uh, your show does is it really talks about how, the, how those things are, are connected, right? Like how the macro and the micro like o- overlap um, yeah. in, in, a, in a person's like lived experience, which is a, which is a really difficult thing I think to communicate um, because it, there's, there's no, there's no like direct like line that you can draw, but, but there also is like, you know, you can't, you can't pull them apart either. And I, um, and so I, I think like, you know, sort of telling stories and interviews and, and all of those things is, is like, is maybe like what one way to do that. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I was also struck in the show of, yeah. about how, by how many, of uh, the same issues, yeah, that we have we have in American cities around like like privatization or like gentrification, yes. like our our um, you know uh, issues um, in in a, in a place like Stockholm, which yeah, I think I think you know people do hold up uh, as as an example, <laughs> right? And um, you know, and yeah. I think. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with propaganda like that. You know, I'm, I'm all right with the propaganda version. (laughs) (laughs) That's my, my, but but I think it's also, you know, is worth sort of being sober from time to time and sort of talking about how, how those issues are are playing out. Um, Cause, cause uh, I think for me, it highlights how the sort of, uh, Develop global development machine that is neoliberalism, like knows no regional or state boundaries. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's yes, really a question. But the thing that. is that, like, <laughs> yeah. this is a little bit related to kind of what we were talking about before uh, we started recording. This sort of mm-hmm. like um, idea from cultural theorist um, Sylvia Winter about like how do you be human together differently, and like. Sweden is being human together in a way that is different from the way that the United States is being human together, right? But which means that they have problems that are different from us, but at the same time that, Mm -hmm. you know, human component sort of adds these like through lines. Like for example, something that really, um, that has really struck me lately. And this is, these are, there are three episodes that are out on the main feed and then there are three episodes that are out for uh patreon supporters so if you'd like to support an independent podcast <laughs> shout out to our patreon but um so the, on the patreon we do like these mini episodes that are like interviews mm-hmm. with just one person mm-hmm. and we did an interview with an investigative journalist who did a lot of work um around uh neo-nazis the neo-nazi movement in the 90s in stockholm and the neo-Nazi movement in Stockholm, and I can't stress this enough, was wild. <laughs> wild! Like, they were murdering people publicly. They were occupying the center, the, the center 
island in the middle of the city. They were beating people up indiscriminately. They were robbing banks, like all of this stuff. And um, the issue was that the police weren't really taking it seriously. So like this, or they weren't taking the ideological component seriously. So this kind of maps a little bit to, I think what's happening in the States right now. So mm -hmm. we were talking, uh, uh, to this journalist, uh, Bosse Lindquist, he was talking about how the police were kind of seeing these men as like, oh, they're little hoodlum brothers, right? Mm -hmm. People who like lost their way. Um, but like, how bad can it really be, right? Mm -hmm. And they refused to take into account like the ideological component. So like he was mm -hmm. talking about how a police officer would like go into you know the apartment of one of these men who had just like committed a murder um and would see that there were like confederate flags and like swastikas and things uh like hanging from his walls mm -hmm. and like wouldn't even see them like wouldn't register them as like something that was like you know wow. yeah motivating right mm -hmm. and like things would happen like uh <laughs> That like that I think that's like the police perspective, but then from the state perspective, there's this idea that like liberalism is so sensible and so good that if we just like rub Nazis against it enough, they'll like the goodness will rub off on them, and they will see that they were not actually committed to that ideology. Mm -hmm. So things would happen like uh, there was like a play that was put on about mm -hmm. neo Nazis. And they, this cultural center, like, invited, like, three men who were in prison for murder mm -hmm. um, to, like, come and sort of, like, be in a play, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And the play just became this, essentially, like, this platform for, like, neo-Nazi ideas. And then at the same time, like, in the same way that, like, the New York Times covering, like, what do Nazis buy at the grocery store? Like, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, and... Uh, what happened was they allowed these men to leave prison to um, be in this place, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, on the third night of the of the play being open, they robbed a bank and murdered two police officers in cold blood. Oh, Jesus. And it's just like, they were extremely explicit about, one, their violence, and two... Uh, their ideology and like none of it was taken seriously because of this blind faith in like the sort of universal goodness or the the normalizing goodness of liberalism right mm -hmm. like they'll be in this play and they'll be cleansed of this right, ideology right, right. that somehow and that's uh and, but like, wait but like yeah. what that what that does is two things, right? One, it shows people who have these ideologies that they're never going to be treated within the full letter of like the, mm -hmm. the law that like, let's say if these, if these men were Muslim, absolutely mm -hmm. they would be. And then at the same time, people who are victims of neo-Nazis, so like um, they like beat to death like a Yugoslavian teenager in like the mm -hmm. 90s they murdered a pretty famous hockey player, like stabbed him to death for being gay. Um, like these people, queer people, people of color, mm -hmm. women, all understood that they would not be protected from that, right? Mm -hmm. From the way that the police were behaving. 
Right. So it's just like you have this dual thing, like a dissolution of an under of of a understanding of like um, a reliable public safety for the mm-hmm. most vulnerable people, and like an understanding of sort of um, complicity and uh, uh, sort of a light touch from the police for these sort of ideological, this kind of ideological violence. Right. Well, and I which think I see me- in the states for sure. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, and I think that that I think is like an interesting um, thing that the show sort of meditates on is, is like what you know, uh, what like how like how cosmopolitan is like a, a you know a European like world cosmopolitan city, right? And like what are what are like the limits limits of that? And I I think. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting to kind of like look at the example of yeah, like far far right activity because I mean it really is the kind of like like hidden id of of a place like uh, like, like like of any society really, and um, I you know I and I and I think finding the ways in which like there there are still echoes of that in less extreme ways um is like is is how we can i don't know sort of gauge how how safe uh, like in support of our cities really really are you know and i, and I think the show kind of uh, yeah. does un- uncover uncovers that in a, in a lot of ways where you know we can look at like the extreme example here and it tells us a story right like a very clear story about uh, yeah. and um but I think you can you can sort of extend that um, into you know thinking about uh, I think in, in in maybe the second or third episode of this season you talk about like the mal- the malms in the sort of center of the city and and some of the yeah. the feelings that a place like that uh, evokes and and it's sort of uh, uh, like yeah. like whiteness and bourgeoisness and like you know connections with. Uh, you know, uh, colonialism and things like this. Yeah, but I think that, that this is exactly right. Like the ripples of the extreme to the mundane, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like this idea that what does colonially acquired wealth do, right? Mm-hmm. It sends these ripples through the organization of a city, through the the way that like city residents understand where they do and do not belong, this mm-hmm. reinforcement of um, like racial and class hierarchies that's like baked into the design of the city, mm-hmm. right? Where people know like this is where the aristocrats live, that's where they live. <laughs> um, that's that's how I like I don't feel comfortable there because I know that I'm not welcome there that I stand out there that it's not possible for me to acquire or put on the like codes of normalcy there because I don't have the skin color or like the wealth to mm-hmm. seem normal in that place right mm-hmm. so it's like very like again like that extreme to the mundane and then like yeah. when it comes to this question of like Nazis of like neo Nazis and often in often in Europe they're OG Nazis you know <laughs> it's it's not that far removed no neo um, about it. <laughs> it's not it's not so neo um, so like the extreme of that is then queer people women people of color have to have this 
ticker tape in their head of like, this man looks like this, right? Mm -hmm. If he does something to me, I know that I can't really get the help that I need. So what are other strategies that I have to do to try to avoid this kind of person, mm -hmm. right? Like um, there's one interviewee that, that says in the show, like angry young men are always defining the space, right? Yeah. So like then everyone, everyone else, everyone who doesn't have that kind of um, permission from sort of the systems of public safety have to kind of create strategies for themselves to try and navigate the way that stage is being set. Like mm -hmm. um, Sweden also had this, um, uh, this, this policing, uh, this incident that, that set off a lot of rage of um, the police being, or this specific unit, it's slipping my mind right now what it was called, what this unit, this policing unit is called, but essentially what they were supposed to do was like find illegal, like mm -hmm. illegal immigrant residents, right? And mm -hmm. instead of like looking at addresses and like going to people's homes or, or whatever, based on like some kind of evidence of um, like some immigration lapse, which is also, but like is typically, or is also not good, but is <laughs> typically, um, is typically like what would be done. Um, they, this police unit went into uh, subway stations and essentially just pulled over anyone who was uh, of any kind of um, racial difference from white, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is like, show us your ID, all of this. So this understanding that like, you can literally be someone who is like threatening violence on someone in the subway as mm -hmm. a like large white man mm -hmm. and sort of get a certain amount of tolerance. But if you're just sort of walking through the subway as like a person of color, your legitimacy in that space will be questioned right and sort yeah. of that understanding of there's this you know sometimes i talk about this like spectrum from do you expect to be policed or do you expect to be protected in public right. space right yeah. and people have a really sophisticated understanding of where they are in that spectrum and will kind of maneuver themselves in different ways to sort of strategize for better safety for themselves right so you cut the the feed cut out there for a minute, but I, I see you now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're we're also just like out of time. The the minutes fly by here. Yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> I think because uh, and and I really want to have you back on this show because we were but sort of before we hit the record button, we we're having a really great conversation about architecture and politics generally. So we're gonna have to have yeah. you back to have that one in, out in full. Yeah. Uh, but I would love I think, to come back. Like I yeah, said, I think about that all the time. Yeah, we we're, we're we're in touch. I mean, I I think, but but to to kind of touch on one last thing, very 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 quickly. I mean, I think that mm. generally speaking, this show is pretty like down on the pow like the power of design, <laughs> quote unquote. But you know, we're not uh, like I I'm certainly not a nihilist about this, and this is kind of what we were discussing earlier. I do think, though, like mm. thinking about like public safety, like like and, and who the public is in that in mm. that idea of public safety, and and like really just like feel like building uh, feelings of comfort for people who don't usually experience that, like that. That kind of that is something a designer can do. <laughs> like you know, I, generally I think designers mm. can't do a lot of things, but but that strikes me as as an area of uh, 
that where where um, mm. design might might have uh, some agency in a way that's a little bit more attainable uh, than 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 other aspects of what we do. Um, anyway, yeah. I could speak to that as yeah. I, I could speak to that really, really quickly. And like I am also like all for understanding like what the agency of design actually is, you know, mm. and not making these like grand statements about like, oh, it can heal the world, or oh, it's just so wicked and will always be like in alignment with authoritarianism. Which, you know, yeah, it's really easy for, for architecture to be. Like, I think that's, like, the easiest position for architecture to take is, like, um, to be in alignment with, mm -hmm. um, in a way, like, the most conservative impulses. But at the same time, there are these, like, infinitesimal, like, things that can be done where, like, you know, thinking about, like, a, like a city square, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, even the... Um, like the impulse of the desire to loiter. Actually, I like to think about this from the, the vantage point of teenagers, mm -hmm. right? Um, because they're always thought to be a menace um, when they're trying to hang out together. But the thing <laughs> is that like, if you're a teenager, you don't have any privacy. You don't have any place to go. Like you can't go hang out at home. Like that's a nuisance. Yeah. So if you want to hang out with your friends and you don't want like adults around, like public space is usually where you can go. And then in the US at least, like how's public space been designed? Everything is commercialized, right? Everything mm -hmm. is you need to have money and a purpose to be here. And there's like a time constraint on how long you can be here and then get out, right? right. For teenagers to have a space, and there was actually like someone that, an architect that we interviewed who was sort of thinking about like young people, kids and like teens in the city and like what mm -hmm. they would want and like what they need. And her, uh, her name is Jelena, you'll hear her in the podcast. But, like, she was basically just talking about how, like, kids now really just want a space that they can gather that has Wi-Fi uh, <laughs> where they can, like, where they can, like, hang out for, like, hours, right? right. And, like, kids, teens are always being chased away <laughs> because yeah. they don't have any money, right? And people think that they're loud or, like, going to steal or up to something. Like, even thinking about, like, a bunch of like boys like hanging out by like a subway entrance right mm -hmm. it's just like oh they're up to no good or they're gonna like catcall women which sometimes they do you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say that that doesn't happen but like literally teens where else are they supposed to go to just like mm -hmm. hang out and also you know this understanding that like mall spaces are like the only place they can go like that seems like you know like commercial space is the only way that public space can be made available it's like yeah. there has to be a different idea than that, I think. Um, I, I think it's possible for a city to be more generous than that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, generosity is a, is a good place for us to end on there. Uh, you'll hear a preview episode of Here There Be Dragons, so stay tuned for that. Um, and yeah, you can find uh, the show anywhere where you find good podcasts. Um, so, so, you know, don't, don't look where you find buildings on air, whatever platform you're listening to this show on. If you're listening to <laughs> look somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, oh, don't listen. Anyway. Don't listen. Don't listen to him. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for joining the show. And, um, you know, yes, uh, really happy we can have you on and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next time because there will absolutely be a next time. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, I'm really, I would be really happy to. Hej Lander, anta att ni träffar ett ungt par som blir område. Jag förmodar att det händer också i verkligheten. Och de vill gifta sig, men de har ingen bostad. Och de är heller inte rika. Vilket råd ger ni dem då? De får ju ställa sig i bostadskön givetvis. Welcome to Here There Be Dragons. This season, I'm taking you to Stockholm. I'm your host, Jess Myers. Episode three, moving. I've never lived longer than two years in one place since I was 18. Um, before I was 18, I moved like 10 times. When you move to a big city, you uh, especially stopped where it's really really hard to find a, some place to live you don't stop and think about how the city is or the environment around it because you are you are trapped in in the race just to make it to the end of the month when i moved to stockholm the apartment I lived in was loaned to me for free by the Swedish Arts Grants Committee, Konstnärsnamnden. This meant I got to skip a quintessential step of staying in a new city, finding housing. I'm someone who's scrounged around for accommodation in many corners of the world. Being scammed, rejected, and fleeced is the norm of moving to me. But moving to Stockholm was like being chauffeured by the housing ferry directly into the heart of the city. No questions asked. It was so easy, I was a little suspicious. Laundry in the building? Balcony with a view? Walking distance from work? <laughs> Not possible. There had to be a mistake. But Stockholmers let me know that, yes, my situation was indeed a fluke. Pure privilege and institutional insulation. For any one of the people I met in the city. Living in the apartment that I was staying in would have been a long, complicated wait or sheer luck. Oh, Housing in Stockholm is complex, which is a soft way of saying it's a crisis. Now, I know what you're gonna say. Isn't that the case for most major cities? Yeah, but Sweden's entire population could fit in the metro region of Paris. If a city of under two million people can't figure it out, what chance do the rest of us have? Although Stockholm is facing a problem that's pretty common, its solutions have always been unique. Like most cities, it grapples with the question of whether housing is a human right. So how do you even get a place in the city? Let's begin at the beginning, or more accurately, let's get in line. Up until the 90s, the most common form of housing stock in Sweden was public housing. And when I say public housing, I mean it. Housing for the public. Not exclusively for low or middle income residents, for everyone. A major reason for that was because most of these housing estates were publicly owned. So it wasn't social housing, it was publicly owned housing, tenant neutral, so anybody could live there. Since the 1920s, Sweden's national government developed urban experiments, buying up land and building housing. Basically, the state became the nation's landlord. 
Sweden's Socialist Political Party, the Social Democrats, rose to power during this time, and one of the main platforms was crafting the nation's social safety net. One philosophy that rose from this moment was the idea that housing is a basic human right. Remember in the first episode when Gunilla moved to Stockholm? I think already when I went to school, I had all the time to pass a big hole, which was the city now with her toilet and everything. It was just a hole. <laughs> so you went on bridges and things like that. Much of the development that happened around her was for housing. Housing is one of the hairiest urban planning questions. You have to get the balance absolutely perfect. If you build too much, the cost of upkeep could bankrupt the state. But if you build too little, you'll have a human crisis on your hands in no time. Sweden is a case study of this teeter-totter. Constantly chasing the perfect balance and the right way to get it is always up for debate. The um, classic question posed to the prime minister was that what would your recommendation be for a young couple moving to Stockholm in order to find housing? Here's Eric again. He's the architect and researcher at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. He helped us understand the political stakes of the housing crisis back in the 50s and 60s. His answer was, well, they can get in line. And the reporter said, well, do you know there's 60 or 70,000 people in line. Obviously, this young couple is not going to get um, housing. Enter the queue, an ominous presence in the life of many Swedes. The city of Stockholm has this line that I think last time I checked was like maybe 20 years waiting time. When you get to the front of the line, you win the jackpot, a lease you can hold for the rest of your life. But waiting can literally take a lifetime, 20 years or even longer. I might be dead by the time my name comes up. I mean, maybe. These lines can get so long that Stockholmers used to put their children on the housing queue as soon as they were born. Although now the rule is you have to be at least 18 to be on the line. Start to live in Vaxholm. Uh, and, you know, you put your kids in that line. And... Uh... I lived in Solna. When they are born. I lived in Stureby. That was like six years when I was first put in this queue out in Jakobsberg. And if you are put in that line, you will get an apartment by year 30. <laughs> A white contract. I'm not sure you can do that anymore, put uh, babies in the line. I found a place in Björkhagen through, uh, through an... Uh, friend. Uh, or if you have to enter the line when you're of age, maybe 18 or 20. So, you know, that changes a lot. I also found one in uh, Stureby. The prices are uh, ridiculously high. The one in Jakobsberg was also through a friend. So it's very hard to enter into the market with an average income. Uh, everyone I know have lived with, with a black contract. You need to be at least two or you need to have a very high it's a contract that is not approved by the um, company that which owns the, the apartment, so you live there illegal. If, if someone had found out, I would be kicked out on the street immediately. And just to make things a little more interesting, the lines also have different categories. Ones for students, ones for residents over 65, ones for residents under 26, and so on. Stockholm is full of queues. But the trick of the lines is that you need to know to get on them. For Gustav and Ahu, that was the most difficult part. Uh, you have to find out about queues. If you're single, 
woman then there might be a queue where you can you know and uh, things like this yeah or there's artist things as well but now i'm learning that there's privately owned companies that you can get on their their lists i'm on the big general queue and i'm on maybe five different private queues for just property developers who have their own queues basically for the general one there's a fee of 200 kronas per year but there's no way of telling if you will ever get get something out of it i guess the lease i have now the contract i have now i have a second because i'm renting from the owner and it's not a management company but they can only rent to me every 9 months because i can claim ownership of the house right if it's more than that every 9 months and they have they give me 2 months notice to vacate you you should be on the queue but like i don't know i probably left stockholm by then i think so you know it's it, part of me doesn't really care because part of me goes like i don't want to live here for the rest of my life anyway the question of where to go and what to do gets even harder when you're new in town for Yasmin, who moved to Stockholm from Somalia after seeking asylum, not having a head start of knowing the rules or even the language left her and her mother scrambling for security. Their confusion was often met with more suspicion than assistance. When Yasmin's mother was no longer qualified for resources for newly arrived asylum seekers, their access to a stability fell apart. Uh, difficult is an understatement. Impossible. You can't. Uh, even people who have jobs, who've been living here for a very long time, can't find housing. So imagine somebody who doesn't have a job, doesn't speak the language, has nothing to show that she can pay the rent. She will, she, it's impossible. She can't find a house. Yeah, there's a housing shortage. On top of that, there's like a hierarchy of people who are really excluded from the housing market, which is poor people, immigrants, people who don't speak the language, people who don't have jobs, unemployed people. And my mom falls in that group, like all those categories. So after oh. January, what is she going to do? So she basically can't do anything. It's like she needs to be registered in an address. She's thinking of uh, depending on relatives kindness for a while and then see if how long that works for her. Because the municipality has um, made it clear that they were not going to do anything about her situation. So, yeah, she doesn't really have a foolproof plan. Okay, so here we are on the line. Either we just found out about it or we've been on it since we were born. But until you actually get the apartment, what do you do? Where do you live? For many Stockholmers, the only certain thing about the housing market is precarity and ingenuity. Some immigrants to Sweden pay small sums to rent an official address. Some young people study for longer just to maintain student housing. But many Stockholmers rely heavily on subletting. You're lucky if you just have a second-hand black contract. And then sub-subletting. You know, there's the first contract. And then sub- And the second sub, contract. Subletting. And the inabuenda. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I think I am because I've been inabuenda for a while. Where you rent a room 
These arrangements are difficult to come by and often illegal. You need to know someone. Having a lease is called a first-hand contract. A sublet is called a second-hand contract. And that's not even getting into third-hand contracts, fourth-hand contracts, and all the shady deals that are sometimes the only option. You need to have some some kind of connection to get somewhere, to have somewhere to live. It's it's not that easy even to get a black black contract because you must know someone. And I know I have friends which have actually bought the black contract and they paid, I think it was 200,000 crowns just to have access to that black contract. It's not that un- uncommon. So you pay 200,000 crowns and uh, if if they find out where you live there, you get kicked out on the street immediately. If you get a first contract, you have it for life. Second contract is like you're renting from the f- person who has the first contract. And then in a Belinda is, is a room. So right now I have a second contract. I've basically never had a legal contract to stay. Like I don't today either. I think I've been super lucky or also like I've, if someone's given me like a a little bit, maybe a shady contract, I've been like, oh yeah, that'll work. It's a house. I don't care. Um, so I think maybe not being too afraid of getting caught or like not being afraid of um, people, I think, or different odd spots to live. I've never had a legal contract. I've always lived in where it's like, you can't have your mail here. If someone knocks, don't open. Like, it's always been that type of situation. Yeah. So, how did Stockholm get here? Why is it so hard to find stability in the city? Well, in the 1970s, Sweden's economy went into a recession. Demand for housing dipped, leaving municipalities with no revenue to maintain units. What most municipalities are left with is a number of empty apartments. So the government has already financed it, and the municipalities have ordered them or asked for them, and the companies have built them, but there's no one moving into them. So... In Södertälje, for example, south of Stockholm, um, in one of the last areas built uh, during the Million Program in Hovsjö, there were apartments that were empty for 10 years. So from 1975, when they were completed, to 1985, nobody rented them. And of course, this was a huge strain on the municipal budgets. And in smaller municipalities and counties around Sweden, actually, apartments were torn down because there was no demand for them. Remember the tricky balance we talked about, that perfect housing ratio? Well, that teeter was tottering. By the 90s, neoliberal policies were gaining popularity across the globe. In Sweden, a more conservative coalition ended the Social Democrats' near 70-year run of unilateral power. One of the key promises that this new administration made was the privatization of public housing. They decided that the only way to reestablish balance was through privatizing. If the state can't afford to maintain housing, then just sell the housing directly to residents. Then they can take care of it themselves, right? Problem solved. Well, not so fast. So the living situation in Stockholm is really, really, really bad. There's a village, but still it's a pretty complex city. 
uh, and not that friendly. I'm really happy I'm outside of that situation because I think it's absolutely a horrific situation that is going on. It's almost impossible to get the first-hand rental contract. I mean, I have an apartment now. I was in the queue for 18 years to get an apartment in Washta. The reason for that is that people who have sworn never let go. Uh, they they pass it on to their family uh, and they probably just stay within the rental market so they if they want to move you find somebody to to switch apartments with which is like not an easy task because nobody can make up their mind in the city i can't deal with that stress it was quite hard just to get an apartment so i left stockholm for like two or three years And when I came back, my grandmother had died. Her apartment, when they sold it, I mean... So I got uh, enough money to buy an apartment in Årsta. Buying housing and just taking care of it yourself sounds great, right? No more lines, no more shady contracts. Well, buying housing is great, if you can afford it. And all that rental revenue that used to go to the state and help fund maintenance, well, that was going directly to the banks now. Housing was no longer a human right, but an investment piece. After rentals were privatized, housing costs skyrocketed because those who couldn't afford to buy were left to chase what was left of the rental market. And after privatization, there wasn't a whole lot left, making the lines even longer. Ulrika, who teaches gender studies at Uppsala University, helped us understand the impact of privatization on housing access in the city. So long story short, part of what happened in the 90s was that a lot of the hyresrätter, so the, the rental public housing, got um, sold, turned into bostadsrättsföreningar, so housing associations, which meant that the number of rentable flats was drastically reduced and you had to be in a housing queue forever, which of course made it impossible for people who weren't born into knowing that to ever get a rental first-hand contract which then in turn made it so, I think, that people who... You had to either come from wealth, which means the northern part, um, or you had to come from outside of Stockholm, so people with who had wealth that could be translated into down payments for apartments. I was in the queue for 18 years to get an apartment in Årsta. 14 years when I got the first apartment. Sweden's path from housing as a public good to housing as a private investment has been a rough transition. Today's housing market is still a hodgepodge of public, private, and black markets. The precarity that many Stockholmers find themselves in often has to do with a complete lack of access. The housing success stories I heard from Stockholmers were usually the result of a big break, knowing the right person who knows a person who knows a person. Whether looking to buy or desperate to rent, every story of luck in the housing market hinged on the divine intervention of friends of friends, elderly residents, generous strangers, or providential housing swaps. Our script consultant Fatu, a librarian who also works in restaurants, told us that she usually wears a pin that says looking for an apartment. I mean, it couldn't hurt, and you never know what could happen. I was really lucky when I was uh, younger. Uh, the area I was from Solna. They were like, oh, everyone that have 
is living with parents and is like above 18 years old are going to get an apartment. So I got an apartment when I was like 21, turning 22. And then I switched my apartment from Solna to uh, here in Söderman with an old lady. She put like a note on the building where where I was uh, living and then it took like three months and then we switched apartments. Well, it was through my personal contacts and uh, it happened to be that a person I didn't know so well but who was in my network, my friend network, not my work network, uh, she had to move to Gotland and I had to move to Stockholm in the same uh, time so we just swapped apartments and uh, continued to pay our own fees uh, during this time. So I ended up at a midsummer party in Uppsala and there I met this American guy who kindly enough um, found housing for me in Stockholm. I told him that I was going to start a study program or a residency program at the Royal Institute of Art, Kungliga Konsthögskolan, for a year, maybe two. Um, and he announced me that it is very difficult to find, to find housing in Stockholm. And so he... Through his own network of connections within the world of architecture, since he did his studies here, he was able to find to find housing for me in uh, on Södermalm. I have to say, it was a huge relief and a bigger privilege to not worry about housing while I was living in Stockholm. But housing insecurity breeds more than just the constant stress of finding a place to call home. It also means that residents have less and less of a say where they live and have to jump at the first viable option, even if it only holds them over for a few months. Beyond financial constraints and cultural knowledge, there are many obstacles to accessing housing in the city. At age, family size, citizenship, language, and you see residents' options get smaller and smaller until only a few neighborhoods are left on the table. Also, to you city planning heads out there wondering why we haven't talked about the Millions program, trust us, it's coming. You can't get out of Stockholm without getting into it. So stick with us for the next episode, where we'll be exploring how the city is organized and the different types of access that residents may or may not have. Stay tuned. The next episode is Segregation, Part 1. We are produced with the generous support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts and Konstnaushnamden, the Swedish Arts Grants Committee. Thank you to our senior producer, Adelie Pajramon-Ponte, and our team of graduate assistants from the Architecture Department at the Rhode Island School of Design. Kimberly Ayala Nahira. Bilal Ismail Ahmad. Daniel Guerrero. Uthman Aloa. Fatu Kamara consults for the show. Corey Jacobs does our music. And Adrian Lilly is our sound designer. If you're not a Patreon subscriber yet, you're really missing out on some very cool stickers and a mini-series to the mini-series of all the digressions and cool stories that we had to cut out of the show. These episodes focus usually on one speaker. 
and you ought to check them out. They're very cool. If you still can't get enough of us, you can find us on social media, all links in the show notes. And you can also check out our website and our newsletter, where we have lots of fun content like readings, maps, and videos. If you have a comment or a question and you're brief, record it and send it to us at htbdpodcast at gmail.com. You might end up on the show. Lastly, but certainly not least, rate and review us five shining stars on whatever platform you listen to us on. It really helps other people find the show. Okay, until next time, this has been Here There Be Dragons. but I don't know if I can say it. I still can go to prison, I think. <laughs> this has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay. And Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at bldgsonair or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.